All right, Hebrews chapter 4 this morning is where we're going to be looking. I'm attempting to tie together verses 1 through 11. We'll see what the Spirit of God does with all of this. But it is all tied together with one theme that I think we desperately need to dial in on this morning. And that is the theme of rest. Rest. Whether you are physically tired emotionally tired or spiritually tired or all three, the theme of rest should be of importance to us because at some point you need to rest in the Lord. And this sort of time of year and timing of this message with it being right at the the brink of 2019 is kind of a, a call to rest. It's a call to evaluate what you did in 2018 to make you so tired where you are right now? Why, why am I so exhausted? What, what do I need to reevaluate? What do I need to stop doing and then start doing, right? So rest is a very important theme for all of us. Life requires strength. When you're young and you have extra strength and adrenal glands that are still firing on all, full, all cylinders, then you never think you're going to get tired or tireder. But the weight of life and just age and living in a fallen world means that we need strength. Life's demands become heavy. Job 5, 7, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Jeremiah 12, 5 says this, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? Why older saints increasingly long for heaven is because of the decrease of strength on earth. Well, until heaven, life requires rest. We all need physical rest. We need six to eight hours of sleep unless you're superhuman. I do. Sleep deprivation will change you. It will mess you up, right? Have you ever been sleep deprived and tried to think or pass an exam or do anything or be coherent? 60 million people in our country every year are documented as suffering from insomnia. The lack of sleep, the lack of the ability to sleep at night. Sleep deprivation is a powerful tool that's used by armies and um, special intelligence sometimes as a form of um, finding information from people. You deprive them of sleep so they'll talk. It's a powerful thing. And we need to take rest very seriously. Not just our physical rest, but our spiritual rest, our need to recover, our need to stop, right? Our need to stop and seek God for strength. Rest is a primary theme in this section. If we were to look back a little bit at chapter 3 and bleed into chapter 4, chapter you can break down sort of four different kinds of rest that are described here. Chapter 4, verse 4 has rest in terms of God's rest where he rested on the seventh day. Chapter 3, 7 through 19, looking at verses 18 and 19 in particular, that's Canaan's rest. That's the physical rest that was promised to Israel going to the promised land. Then you have salvation rest, which is chapter 4, verse 1, and then 3, and then 8, and 9. This is being reconciled with God where we rest in the Lord because we are at peace with God. And then 
Fourth category, heaven's rest, the ultimate rest, the finish line rest where you cross the finish line into heaven. And guess what? You don't have to work anymore in heaven. Now, that might not be entirely true, right? Because we'll have jobs and roles and things, but it's not the curse of the fall work anymore, right? We're not laboring under the sweat of our brow in heaven. No more sickness, no more death, no more dying, no more tears, no more demons. That's rest. That's rest. Well, these four categories could be refashioned in four dimensions. God's rest, where he rested on the seventh day. It's our example, rest. Number two, physical rest. That's the Canaan rest. Number three, spiritual rest. That's being at peace with God. Number four, eternal rest. Just ways to look at the word rest. Rest is used in a, in a very clear manner Speaking of the promised land, but it's teased out in different ways. And these are the four different ways that it's teased out. Rest is katapalsis in the original language. and all has a similar meaning every time that it plays out in these verses. The idea is to cease from work. It's, again, to stop doing what you're doing. Action, labor, exertion is over. It's also the freedom from worry. It's the freedom from doubt. It's the freedom from mental and emotional anguish. It's to be at peace. It's to lie down. It's to be settled. It's to be fixed. It's to be secure. It's no more running in circles. Let me recast these into four applications. It's seeing God's example of rest. We talked about that. It's fearing the forfeiture of rest. And we're going to get into that in the beginning of chapter 4, what Israel forfeited. Embracing God's promise of rest, which is salvation promise, and then striving to enter eternal rest, which is running the race with endurance all the way to heaven. So how do you find rest? How do you get there from here? Is this message speaking to you so far in terms of where you are? Hopefully I'm not lulling you to sleep. I'm not giving you permission to take a nap now, but I might later after church. It's all right. Just not now. It's not all right. All right. Chapter 4, look at verse 11. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. If you just take out that little phrase, strive to rest, strive to enter that rest, almost seems like a contradiction, right? Striving. When you think of striving, you think of urgency and effort. Seems like a contradiction with rest. You're striving to rest. What does that mean? But that actually is the key that unlocks how you get rest in the Lord. Psalm 46 is a very familiar psalm. It speaks of God as our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. Talks about, you know, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains are moved. Um, Into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar with foam, the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Then verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord. Verse 9, he makes wars to the end of the earth, makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now here's the familiar verse, verse 10. 
Be still and know that I am God. In the New American Standard, it says, cease striving and know that I am God. Hebrews 4.11 says, strive that you may enter into God's rest. Psalm 46.10 says, cease striving or be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So which is it? Striving sounds like the opposite of be still, doesn't it? Well, if you put Hebrews chapter 4, 11 in its context, if you understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying in terms of striving or to strive, then you actually will find out that there's no contradiction at all between what this author is saying in Hebrews 4 and what the author of Psalm 46 is saying. To strive is actually to cease striving. Let me put it this way. To strive is to stop the locomotive of life that's driving you into the ground. What are you striving to do? By faith, you're saying, God, help it to stop. Help me to stop working so hard that I'm driving myself crazy. Striving is an action word. Paul uses it um, in the New Testament for being zealous, eager, taking pains, making every effort. He longed to see people's faces. He was striving for that, to be diligent, to be approved, a workman that needs to not be ashamed. Second Peter 1, to be diligent in terms of your calling, in terms of being chosen, spotless and blameless for Christ at his return. So there is an urgency to striving. But we are not talking about striving according to the flesh or striving according to our own strength. We're talking about something that is driven and motivated by faith. And there is effort in it, but it's faith-driven effort. And it's a faith that is telling your life to stop. It's the strong muscles of faith that tell you to rest It's a work of faith. What does this look like? Well, verses 1 through 11 tell us what striving to enter into God's rest looks like. Let's begin with point one. Rest begins and ends with God. Rest begins and ends with God. How do you stop your life, your locomotive train that's running you crazy? You have to look at God first and realize that The whole idea of rest began with God. God didn't create rest just because you need it. It is a gift to us and sleep is a gift for us. And I understand that. But God didn't originally create it just because we need it. Just because we are sinners living in a fallen world in need of a renewed strength. He didn't. Rest began for a different purpose. And if you look at... uh, you know, chapter one, and you just travel down a little bit. We'll return up to verse one, but if you go down to verse four, look at that. It says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, what the author is doing there is he's going right back to Genesis chapter two. If you'll turn back in your Bibles to Genesis 2, listen to this. 
In Genesis 2, the creation account has taken place. All six days have been spoken of in chapter 1. God created, God created, God created, God created. There was morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. By the way, I'm a six literal day creationist because of the reference over and over again in chapter 1 of morning and evening and calling that a day. That's just one of those duh moments to me. I mean, it's, it seems pretty natural. There's morning, there's evening. That's a day, right? So then you come to chapter 2. And it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So he's marking a particular day as holy, as something to be set apart, set apart to him and set apart to his creation. The seventh day is marked as a day of rest, a day where God was working and then he stopped creating. Why? It says rest is to be commemorated as holy. Does God need rest? No, he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. He wasn't out of strength at the end of the sixth literal day account where he needed physical rest. He's inexhaustibly powerful. So what's going on here? Exodus 20 gives us a clue. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 verse 8 is an explanation of one of the commandments to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, verse 9 of Exodus 20. Six days you shall labor and, all, and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth. This is another marker for six literal day creationism. The sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. So what's the point? Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. If you look at verse 8 again of Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God marks it as holy. So what's our response to God's marked holy day? To remember it. God created rest so that we would remember him. God created the Sabbath so that we would worship him. So that we would say, God, you are God. You are the creator. You're the only creator. You didn't create you. We're not creators. We're inventors. We're multipliers, but God is the only God who created something out of nothing. And so he's the creator. So we're to remember him as creator. That's what the Sabbath was put there for. That's why people were punished for working on the Sabbath. They weren't worshiping God for being creator. Part of tapping into rest is for you to stop and say, God, you're God and I'm not. 
Part of the reason that we can't sleep, part of the reason we can't restore, part of the reason we can't reinvigorate, regenerate, feel strong, is we're striving in the flesh and acting like we are God. So the point of, again, the psalm I read earlier, be still and know he is God, means you are not God. We're stopping and saying, God, you are the Lord of the Sabbath. You invented rest so that we could see what rest is and see that you are God inexhaustibly powerful. And we could rest in you. Now, in the New Testament, the Sabbath becomes the Lord's day, as it's defined in Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and Revelation 1, 10. Revelation 1, 10, John mentions entering into his vision on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day was to commemorate Christ's resurrection. This is part of why we in our tradition as a church worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day. His death, his burial and resurrection, part of Friday, all of Saturday, part of Sunday. Sunday, the Lord's Day, resurrection day, right? And that became the New Testament's, New Testament church's day to remember the Lord, 1 Corinthians 16.9. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church, churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of the week. That's Sunday, the Lord's Day. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. They worshiped, they gave, they gathered on the Lord's Day. So Sabbath rest, part of stopping is recognizing God as creator and Jesus is our savior. To be still and know that he is God is to be still and know Jesus has risen from the dead. Sabbath rest begins and ends with God. We rest because God is God. But this isn't the main point that the author of Hebrews is driving at. It's just a, an implied point. It's an important one. We rest in God because the Sabbath remains for us. That's what the author of Hebrews is really pointing out to these early Christians. These early Christians. If you go back, before we go back to Hebrews, I just want to put a postmark on Genesis 1. If you look at the different... um, the different days where in verse 3, let there be light and there was light and he saw the light was good. God separated the light from darkness. Verse 5, God call, called the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. That day and night and morning and evening is repeated through all the creation account in, in, in the six literal days. It's over and over and over. Verse 13, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from the night. And let them be for season, signs and seasons for days and years. He goes on. Verse 19, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm and swarms of living creatures and let birds fly in the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw it was very good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. 
And then in verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our own image, our image after the likeness of them and Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And it goes on and on. And verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. But there's verse 31 again. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. And then you go into the seventh day, which is the Sabbath day. Where God finished his work, verse 2, and all that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. And it says, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Now, New Testament scholars and even rabbis look at a verse like this in the seventh day as distinct from the first six literal day creation Days because God is resting and there's no mention at that point of morning and evening. In other words, the Sabbath is open-ended. The Sabbath remains. And that's a theme that is um, covering these first 11 verses. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 with all of this in mind. Look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, there it is, The Sabbath or rest from God remains for you. That's the key principle. While it still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. Stop right there. How do you tap into God's rest that remains? Well, you have to understand that Israel's failure or the first generation where they failed to enter into God's promised land rest is not your failure. Say, how does that apply? Well, I think it's very easy to become self-deluded and begin to tell yourself in your inner subtext that you're beyond rest. You're beyond help. You're, You're hopeless to recover. And the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, Israel's failure, where they did not believe God and go into the land, does not need to be your failure. The promise of rest for you still remains. It still stands. There's a caution here actually to fear the Lord over this promise. It's actually Um, the author applying comfort, but he's also doing it as a warning. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed it. You can come to a place where you just are in despair and you, 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 you can't reach it or you don't think you can reach it anymore. You don't think you can get there from here. What the author is saying is get your eyes up, get heavenward, remember that God will not fail you. Don't wallow in self-pity. And don't believe your opportunity has passed. He's also warning unbelievers, unbelievers in the church who say, hey, I've never rested in the Lord at all. I I don't have any idea what you're talking about. He's saying, be warned. This is an urgent warning for you now today to rest in the Lord. 
fear God over this. Well, in what sense? Look at verse 2. For good news came. That's the gospel. Literally, the gospel. The euangelion of the New Testament. It came in the Old Testament in the form of God speaking directly to this generation. It came to these early Christians. It came to us, early Christians, as it did to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. I don't think the first generation, apart from Joshua and Caleb and those that were under the age of 18, I don't think they were believers. I think that first generation was like a dead church, a church in quotes only, not really believing God's promises, just going through the motions because the gospel message didn't benefit them. The natural man does not understand the things of the spirit of God. But the good news came to them, and just like it came to them, it came to the New Testament church. This Old Testament group, they were not, look at verse 2, united by faith. They were not blended in faith with those who listened. Obviously, some listened to the good news, but by and large, that group did not listen. The rest had to be embraced by faith. But verse 3 rings of hope. Look at verse 3. For we have believed, who have believed enter that rest. And then he tacks on from Psalm 95 the warning here. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He's speaking of the first generation. They don't enter the rest. They didn't believe, but go back up to verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. So the author here is saying, look, don't be like that first generation. Don't be self-deluded or self-deceived into believing that you're not going to enter rest. Re-engage by faith the promises of the gospel. They were under the wrath of God, but you are not needing to be under the wrath of God. Do you see that? Do you see what the author is doing? You're not Israel. Israel's failure is not your failure. You have Christ and you have faith. That's what he's doing. He's toggling back and forth with that, saying that salvation is now. You enter into this rest now. You don't have to be like them. Psalm 95 is speaking to the necessity of faith. They didn't exercise faith, and he's just slamming it home here. God's works here are mentioned in verse 3. He says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And what's he doing here? He's saying Israel, even though God had created the promised land, had created a Sabbath rest for them. They fell short of it by their lack of faith. But even though God had set the table for them to enter into the promised land, they didn't. They didn't. It's how salvation is. God offers salvation through Christ. It's set up through the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? The table is set for anyone to believe, to find full rest in Christ alone. But if you don't embrace Christ by faith, you are like those who wandered in the wilderness and fell short. 
the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, um, the cross work of Christ was always in the mind of God and it was set for us just like the Sabbath rest was set for the Israelites. But we shouldn't spurn God's help and God's promise. Well, believing is the ingredient for finding rest. Verses 4 through 6, they they just reinforce those. Look at verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, disobedience being their lack of faith. So, Number one, how do you enter into God's rest? You enter into God's rest by not falling prey to Israel's failure, but seeing faith as your path forward. And then secondly here, God's promise is not limited by time. Rest remains for you because it's not limited by time. Verse seven, again, he, appoint, he appoints a certain day Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Verses seven and eight are very complex, but if I can lay it out as simply as possible, the point is very simple. The simple point is this, um, the rest that I'm offering to you from God's word remains for you. And the author is proving that it remains for you in this sense. He mentions a couple names here. He mentions David and he mentions Joshua. Okay, two people from the Old Testament. And he mentions those names to date stamp time periods when rest was offered. Okay, Joshua was the leader who took over for Moses. Remember Moses Instead of uh, speaking to the rock, he angrily smacked the rock. He wasn't permitted to go into the promised land, but Joshua took over. And the beginning of Joshua speaks of his leadership and his call to lead the children of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land. And basically he did this 1400 BC, 1400 years before Christ's birth and was, was tasked to do that and to go into the promised land. Now, if you think of David, David was writing Psalm 95, which it says that he did so around 1000 BC, which marks it 600 years later after the children of Israel had gone into the promised land. So 1400 BC, the children of Israel go into the promised land and, and, and God makes a nation there and all of that happens. And, and then you have King David come on the scene 600 years later and he writes of that experience in Psalm 95. Now, what is the author doing? He's saying that the promise of rest was given during Joshua's time. And then the promise of rest is given through David, the poet king, who's referencing back to what Joshua had and the children, the second generation of Israel had. But he's offering it in this psalm to believers a thousand year B.C. And then what is the author of Hebrews doing at 70 AD? He's again referencing back to Psalm 95 and referencing back to... 1400 BC, these date stamped markers, 1400 BC, then you have 1000 BC, then you have AD 70, and then you might even put on today's preaching where we have right before 
the, you know, the new year of 2019, rest is offered at all of these points and continues to be offered to believers throughout the ages. The Sabbath rest is opened. There was no morning and evening around that day. It's, it's an open day for all to rest in the Lord. That's what's going on here. It's kind of a complicated study. But it's an interesting point to understand. Verse 9 in that context. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the people of God. It's today. God's rest remains and it's there for you today. Some people have picked up on the word Joshua here in verse 8. That word in the original language is the same word for Jesus. Joshua, in one sense, is like a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, a pre-savior. He was the one who would take that second generation and redeem them, in a sense. The first generation fell. The first generation did not believe. The second generation was believing. The second generation was doing the warrior's march across Jordan, where Jordan was stacked up. Remember the miracle account of it being stacked up in a heap, and they walked into the promised land. Joshua 21, 43 speaks of this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers and they took possession of it and they settled there and the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. You want to strive to enter rest? You have to believe in the promises of God. You have to believe God is the author of the rest. He created it. Rest begins with God. And then rest, it remains for you. And point two, rest is by faith, not works. It takes faith to stop the locomotive like crazy of your life and to center on God and say, I'm going to trust your promises. Let me say this. What, what are the things that you trust in instead of God? Sometimes that's a healthy exercise to do. What have I been trusting in in 2018 to make me happy? My possessions, my toys, my bank account, my lack of bank account, my family, my friends, my encouragement that I receive, just different vehicles that you set up in your life to try to run encouragement into your heart. What, what are those things instead of God that are replacing God in your life? Repenting of those things, saying, Lord, I want to cast those things aside and center on you for rest. I want to find rest in you. Falling asleep at night is an amazing event, isn't it? Who can remember the exact moment when they fell asleep? Right, none of us. We're, we're kind of wandering, you're laying there, you're laying there, you're thinking. And that's an interesting time where we will put you know, things up in our minds where we're trying to trust in certain things and circumstances and items and issues and resolutions for peace and for rest. But really, if you're able to put those things out of your mind and cast those cares upon the Lord, and then center on God, then oftentimes we can find rest, right? 
And then there's a shutdown and you go to sleep. It's the same thing in day-to-day life. We have to rest in faith. Now it works. Look at verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let's stop there. Verse 10, what does it mean? He, you've entered God's rest and you've rested from, and also God has rested from his works. What does that mean? For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Well, there's a sense in which when we are saved and we've already entered into God's rest, we're very similar to the Sabbath moment, the seventh day, because we've stopped working. We, we're stopping in this sense of we're not earning our salvation. We're not trying to get ourselves to heaven. There's a sense in which when you are saved, you're just saying to the Lord, I'm stopping. I mean, someone in here might be an unbeliever who is just, or you might know someone who is just, they're trying their best to to be good. And they're just revving and they're just going and going and going and going. They think that they are like God, the creator. They're trying to create their world and sustain their world and keep their world going. At salvation, it's like, it's like you're hitting the seventh day and you're just going, oh, I'm done. I'm resting. I'm stopping. And God didn't need to stop because he's God. But he stopped to give us an example of what real faith looks like where we say, uncle, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop trying to save myself and I'm going to let Jesus Christ be my savior. Now, when you tie this to verse 11, you see a little bit of a different idea here as well. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. The angle here is, again, trying to define what it means to strive. If you've entered into God's rest and you're not working for your salvation, then in what sense are you still striving for something? Well, this is talking about the Christian life. Because even though we're saved, we still have sin in our lives, right? And everything inside you says, in one sense, I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. I'm not saving myself. I am a Christian. I am not a part of any cult religion. I'm not part of any sort of works-based salvation. But then there's the temptation to fall away from that truth that we're standing on and still try to earn our righteousness, still try to do something to gain favor with God. That motor starts running again, doesn't it? Where we stop trusting the promises of God. The word strive here is not saying work hard. It's it's the faith motivation to stop trusting in yourself and to be still and know that he is God. The language here says, verse 10, you've entered into God's rest. You are saved. You're there already. You're looking future to heaven. You're resting already. 
And then verse 11, therefore, because you're already saved, because you're already sealed, because you're already destined for the rest in heaven, therefore, strive to enter that rest. Work hard in your soul to trust God and let go. It's like that child again who you want to go, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, rest, rest, put the music on, put the mood light on, right? You know, here's the melatonin, sorry, you know, whatever, you know, what, what, the warm milk, whatever it takes, go to sleep, go to sleep. That's what God is trying to do in our own lives so that we will truly rest in the promises of God and say, God, I'm going to heaven You've saved me. I can't save myself. So now I need to cease striving. Be still and know that you are God. And it takes an effort, a faith decision to enter into that rest, to understand that. And that's a persevering faith. It's a marathon faith. It's a faith that equals resting in the Lord. If you try to run by your own power, and your own strength within your own energy, something's going to happen to you. Look at verse 11. It says, Therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Pride comes before the fall. Pride comes before the fall. If you try to strive to enter into God's rest, if you try to strive in the flesh, you'll fall just like that first generation of Israel did. If you look at the next few verses, these are some of the most familiar verses in all of Hebrews, where it says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Do you know why there's that heavy reference to the word of God and how active it is in our lives? Why that's tacked on to the end of this discussion? I mean, a lot of times we quote that, those verses from memory just to talk about the potency and power of the word of God. The word of God that's like a a two-edged sword of the Amalekites. It's double-edged, it cuts right into our hearts. Why is that put there? I'll tell you why. Because it is so difficult to enter into God's rest that we need this kind of accountability on us to do it. It's so easy to fake ourselves out and to believe that we are okay, that we're marching along as Christians, doing just fine when we really aren't. God wants you to rest. He does. He wants you to rest in him. Why? It gives him glory. He wants us in the New Testament sense to stop and Sabbath to say, I'm remembering you are the author of rest and I'm marking that as holy. And as a Christian, I'm going to rest in you. That's a gift, but it takes this kind of searchlight from the Holy Spirit in our lives to hold us accountable to say, God, you, are, you know my heart and you know I want to rest in you and I'm going to stop and I'm going to rest in you now.